1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. This letter written by Peter, the disciple of Jesus, is not addressed to a particular church. Instead, it was a letter that was intended for circulation among multiple churches scattered across Asia Minor, or what we would now know as Turkey. This region covers nearly 200,000 square miles, and though it was under the jurisdiction of Rome, part of the Roman Empire, the ethnic groups and the cultures within it were very diverse. One thing is clear. Peter is writing to Christians who are living in environments that are hostile to their faith. Peter is encouraging them to maintain a faithful witness and to thrive spiritually where God has placed them. So we're looking this morning at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I'll read through the beginning of verse 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. This is God's word. To rejoice. That means to feel or show great joy or delight. Did you know that it's a New Testament command to rejoice. Now you may wonder, how can the Lord command a feeling? Aren't my emotions outside of my control? In fact, they are not. As Christians, God expects us to be consistently joyful people. Rejoice always is the Apostle Paul's instruction to us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. And by this alone, we know that it is possible to feel or show great delight regardless of our feelings. God never commands what he does not provide the ability to perform. The reason that I'm speaking of rejoicing is because of verse 6. Peter concludes the statements we'll consider this morning with the words, In this you greatly rejoice. Whereas Paul gives us the imperative to rejoice, Peter tells us how to rejoice. In this, you greatly rejoice. In other words, pay attention to what is being said. It is in grasping these things that you will be equipped to greatly rejoice. Doesn't that sound appealing? Though there are some who would make a distinction between joy and happiness, as far as the scripture is concerned, as far as I can tell, they're both the same thing. Can can you be happy without being joyful? Can you be joyful without being happy? Everyone wants to be happy. It's universal. We spend most of our time and resources and energy toward that end. What Peter wants his readers to understand at the outset is how to feel and show great joy. He does this by telling us three things that are true about every Christian. One has to do with the past, one with the future, and one with the present. And so the first thing we need to reflect upon if we are to rejoice is what has happened in the past, a past birth, a past 
birth. The reason for everything that God has done, will do, and is doing for Christians is his great mercy. We read that in verse 3. God the Father works through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. While grace means that God gives us something, mercy means that God withholds something. And what God withholds makes all the difference. Mercy means that God shows pity in spite of our sin. In compassion, God chooses to consider our utter helplessness, our inability to right our own wrongs. And in doing so, what does he withhold? He withholds judgment. And this is where salvation begins. It begins with God. He looks with mercy upon us who deserve condemnation. But God does not show mercy as an end in and of itself. God's mercy is never deserved. It's bestowed upon the helpless, the weak, the unable, the undeserving. You get a taste of what it is to show mercy when there is someone before you who has made an absolute mess of their lives through habitual bad decisions. A person who's lost everything due to their own choices. They've burned bridges. They've dynamited relationships. Uh, they've become destitute in the process. We've all known people like this. Maybe a relative. Maybe an acquaintance. The person through their own lack of initiative is without a job, without the means to take care of themselves, without help. And you look upon him or her and are moved with pity and compassion. You decide to help them out, not because they deserve help or could ever even repay your assistance, but because you choose to be merciful. You withhold what they deserve, namely to fully suffer the consequences of their choices. And that is exactly the spiritual position each of us is in before the Lord. And so God did something. God, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. God took the initiative. God caused something to happen. God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, he intervened. And this merciful intervention is what we are considering as reasons to rejoice. We will discover as we move through the letter of 1 Peter that Peter often references the teachings of Jesus. And this makes sense because Peter, of course, spent three years with the Lord and he heard teaching directly from the lips of the Lord. So in John chapter 3, Jesus was talking secretly to a man named Nicodemus. One night, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. They were talking, discussing matters. And Jesus said to him in verse 3 of John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. One of those phrases that Christians tend to throw around without much thought. In our Christian circles, it's very familiar to us. But someone who did not grow up attending church, for them it would be unintelligible, as it initially was for Nicodemus. And this was his response. How can a man be born again when he is old? He continued, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus then proceeded to take something that we all understand and used it to illustrate spiritual truth. What happens at physical birth? Well, a baby enters into the world. Now, now that baby was living in the womb 
but it was not interacting with other people. It was not interacting with the environment. At the moment of birth, the baby becomes alive to the physical world. When a baby is born, we say that there is what? There is new life. Jesus attempting to make what happens when a person becomes a Christian clear describes that moment of conversion as a second birth. You were not born physically a second time, but you are born spiritually, which simply means that you come alive to God. There is suddenly new life. Before you were spiritually dead, physically alive, yes, but spiritually dead. The state of spiritual destitution that's brought about by disobeying God, the Bible calls this sin, is a state of being disconnected from God. You're out of fellowship with him. You're unable to access his resources. You're under his judgment. But that all changes the moment that you place your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You were made alive to God because you were connected spiritually to God. You're born again, this time born into spiritual life. So if you're a Christian, this is what God has done for you. It occurred in the past. How did it happen? Well, Peter explains. He says, the new birth is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The only reason that you became alive to God the moment you believed is because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the reason. And that is a historical fact, a reality. Jesus rose into new life and he raises into new life all those who trust in him. Your salvation, if you were saved, is based on the fact of the resurrection. Your assurance of eternal life is not based on what you've done. It's not even based on your faith. Your faith is, is simply the way to access it. The assurance of spiritual life that is now connected to God's life is based on the real time, in real space fact that Jesus Christ walked physically out of the tomb. And what happened? Well, for you, you were born again into a new reality, a new existence, which Jesus called, and talking to Nicodemus, the kingdom of God. How did it happen? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what do you possess now as a result? Well, we're told in verse 3, a living hope. A living hope. Hope is eager expectation of what's to come. Yet, you possess the hope right now. So how does that work? Well, anytime that you anticipate a future event with excitement, it affects you in the present. Think about it this way. Since we're already talking about babies, let's stick to that thing. What does an expectant mother feel as she thinks about the birth of the baby in her womb. Joy. She anticipates what is not yet a reality, but is coming in the future. Now, I'm not discounting the husband's anticipation, but the mother feels it the most acutely because she's the one that's carrying the baby. What do the future parents do? They fix the nursery. They paint it up. They go out and they buy a stroller. They buy these fancy car seats. 
They begin to prepare themselves for some big changes that they know are on the horizon. And the whole time, there is an excitement that is the direct result of an event that has not yet occurred, but is coming. We call this expectation of what's to come that affects us in the present, hope. And the closer the due date draws, the greater the anticipation. The hope, it grows. It is a living hope. And isn't that what it means to have life? Anything that is alive grows and changes. Even if you aren't growing taller anymore, I won't say anything about growing wider, even if you aren't growing taller anymore, your cells are doing what? They are constantly reproducing and dying. In seven to ten years, you will not have a single cell left in your body that you have today. You're still growing. You're constantly growing. Every living thing grows. Plants grow. Animals grow. Growth is the hallmark of life. And so the hope that you have today, based on what is coming in the future, is a living hope. It is increasing in vitality day after day. And we see this, we observe this as Christians age. Elderly Christians especially, as they sense the end of their lives drawing near, they increase in their desire to see the kingdom of God in its fullness. You've experienced this. You might have seen this with your parents or other elderly people you know that loved Jesus. What do they begin to do? They begin to withdraw from what's going on around them presently as they sharpen their focus on what is coming. The glory of the hope of what's to come creates this increasing sense of excitement and desire. The future is present, which is why their hope today is living. Well, the reason that you greatly rejoice is because of what God accomplished when you were born again. As we've seen, this has ongoing effects. Too many Christians, they look back on the day of their salvation as a past event with no bearing on the present other than a reference point. But Peter, he, he casts this line of thinking aside. He says, because you were spiritually made alive, then you anticipate what is to come, living today in light of that expectation. Think about that destination that you've always wanted to go to, that, that dream vacation, wherever that might be for you. Something popped in your head, possibly. Now think about how you would feel if you were given an all-expenses, I mean, no hidden fees, for real, all-expenses-paid trip to that location. You only have to wait a year, and then you're there. The fact of your trip was accomplished in the past. The trip became a reality the moment you received the news that you had won. The actual experience of the trip is in the future. Yet as you wait in anticipation, what do you feel? Joy. You rejoice in having received news in the past and in what that means for the future. You can greatly rejoice regardless of your circumstances now because of what has happened and because of what is coming. And that is what your past spiritual birth does for you. Another reason to rejoice is a future inheritance. A future inheritance. Verse 4 tells us why we have been born again. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. 
reserved in heaven for you. Peter is not quoting Jesus directly here, but his statement about a future inheritance does recall the words of the Lord on the subject. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. This this corrosive and this decaying process reflects what scientists call the second law of thermodynamics. A fancy title, but to put it simply, everything material is always losing energy. Matter always goes from order to disorder. Everything, if it's left to its own devices, is breaking down. The second law of thermodynamics. It takes no effort for your house to get dirty and cluttered. But we all know that it takes a lot of effort to clean it up. It's the same with everything. Leave a tool unused in the basement long enough and it begins to rust. Yet the temptation for all of us is to collect stuff. So much stuff that we cannot possibly use all of it in a lifetime. And what does all that stuff do? It, it breaks down. And it reminds us how futile it is to pile up treasures here. Peter elaborates on Jesus' words here in verse 4. He says that our inheritance in heaven will not perish, will not be defiled, will not fade away. And if we look a little closer at these words that Peter uses, we receive an even fuller picture of what awaits the Christian in the future. Imperishable. That means freedom from death and decay. Undefiled means freedom from moral impurity. Unending or not fading away means freedom from the ravages of time. And the common denominator in all of these things is freedom. Freedom from. And this present life, even as one born again into a relationship with God, we are all dying physically. We are all struggling daily against the flesh. We are all feeling the ravages of time. Our stuff wears out and our bodies wear out. Typically a person peaks physically in their late 20s and it's all downhill from there. We are looking forward to an inheritance, a new existence on a higher plane of reality where we will finally and forever be free from death and sin and time. As often as you are reminded of the physical death that awaits all of us, as often as you struggle to overcome your sinful habits and tendencies, as often as you lament the way your body does not work like it used to work, look longingly toward your inheritance. But there's something else going on here in verse 4. Nearly every commentator that I read points this out. Peter knew his Old Testament. He was Jewish. This word inheritance would have brought to the mind of Peter's readers, many of whom also knew their Old Testaments, that the Israelites' inheritance was the land promised to them by God. Over and over, the Lord made it clear that he was giving the Israelites the land 
of Canaan, their inheritance, a physical gift representing God's goodness and faithfulness and provision. Whenever they needed a reminder of the love of God, all they had to do was to lift up their eyes and to look at the lavish landscape and to enjoy the abundant provision. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. They received it from a merciful God. Every tribe and every family within each of those tribes was given a portion of land that was to be passed down from generation to generation. There was this lasting right of ownership. So long as the Israelites trusted the Lord as demonstrated by loyalty to his law, the land was theirs. Of course, we know that they did not trust the Lord and they consistently turned away to worship idols and to embrace the the detestable practices of the nations around them. But the inheritance that Peter speaks of is imperishable, even though the land was perishable. When the Israelites persisted in disobedience and unfaithfulness, the land was invaded and plundered and ruined. The inheritance Peter talks about is undefiled. But God, through the prophet Jeremiah, declared this to the people of Judah. I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land and my inheritance you made an abomination. It's Jeremiah 2.7. So the land was defiled by foreign armies, and then it was defiled spiritually by this rampant idol worship that was going on. The inheritance that Peter speaks of in verse 4 is also unfading. This was not true of the land of Israel. The prophet Isaiah, reflecting on the judgment to come to the land in Isaiah 40, verse 8, said, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We usually think of the last part of that verse, but think about the first part. The grass and the flowers will perish. So why does Peter draw our attention to the land? Well, he's making a contrast. For an ancient Israelite, the land that he owned was everything. It represented his wealth. It represented his legacy. It was what he passed down to his children. It was his treasure. It was a gift of God. But the Lord knew that the Israelites were incapable of faithfulness. He knew if it was up to them that they would lose their inheritance, which they did. God was faithful to give it to them, but they were not faithful to keep it. Peter understood, however, that the land of Israel was never meant to be their ultimate inheritance. The physical land, it simply pointed to an eternal and heavenly land. Isaiah spoke of it. Isaiah 65, he wrote, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, The Lord says, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. The real and lasting inheritance of the people of God is something far better than the land of Canaan. It cannot decay. It will not be stained by evil. It will not be affected by the ravages of time. John in Revelation 21 tries to describe it. He writes, God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Everything that we lose in this life 
will be regained in its eternal significance. Everything that we grieve over, our coming death and and the death of others, the sin that so easily entangles us, the loss of physical strength and vitality, all those things that are sources of grief now will come to an end. Instead, as Isaiah wrote, looking toward our true future inheritance as Christians, that is our source of gladness. That is our source of joy. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. So how do you rejoice today? Will you reflect on what's to come? I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I did enjoy the movies. But I do love this scene that's found in book four. Sam, one of the main characters, wakes up. And he thinks that everything is lost. Instead, what he discovers is that all of his friends are surrounding him. And this is what Tolkien, the author, writes. Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. And at last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Tolkien is conveying a spiritual truth in this fantasy novel, and it's the same truth that Peter conveys. Your inheritance as a Christian guarantees that there will be no more reason for sadness. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. You can rejoice today because of what's coming tomorrow. What is it that deflates you and me today? What hinders our joy? Well, it's because we focus on our present distresses, on our present annoyances and and frustrations. Don't focus on these. Don't focus on these. Focus on your inheritance. Rejoice and be glad today because you will rejoice and be glad in your inheritance forever. Not only is our inheritance kept in heaven for us, We are kept for our inheritance. So we also see in this passage a present protection. A present protection. Verse 5 reads, We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just as the Lord knew that the Israelites could not, by their own efforts and strength and faithfulness, keep the land that He gave to them, So the Lord knows that you and I, by our own efforts and strength and faithfulness, cannot keep the salvation that he has provided for us. If it was up to us to earn our inheritance as a reward for our obedience, we would never receive it. You would never receive it. I would never receive it. If it was up to you to safeguard and protect your salvation in your own strength, you would lose it. But this will never happen. It will never happen because you're standing with God. Your relationship with God is protected by the power of God. That's what Peter writes. In other words, God himself assumes the responsibility to guard what you entrust to him. 
The same faith that you exercised the day of your salvation is the same faith that continually activates the protective power of God. You do not earn God's protection today any more than you earned God's salvation yesterday. But you trust for him to guard and preserve your fellowship with him the same way you trusted him to bring you to himself when you called upon him in the name of Jesus. Think of it this way. A light bulb does not light itself. It has to receive electricity if it's going to light up. And so long as that switch on the wall is turned off, no power is going to flow from the source into that bulb. You cannot energize yourself with the protective power of God, but you can keep the channel open. You can keep that switch turned on so that that protective power of God will flow in and through you. Your faith is the switch that ensures the Lord will guard your salvation so that you know that you will receive what is promised. When the New Testament speaks of salvation, we've talked about this before, it uses one word, salvation, really to describe three different things, depending on where it is in the text. Salvation is sometimes used to refer back to your conversion. Salvation is sometimes used to refer to sanctification, that is, your present spiritual growth. And salvation is sometimes used to mean the future when you fully will become like Jesus, your glorification. So that one word salvation can mean conversion, sanctification, or glorification. But here in verse 5, salvation means the last one of those. A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is coming. What that means is that God is working in you presently with a view toward the future when you will fully be conformed to the image of Christ. The Lord guards you today so that you are sure to receive the inheritance that he guards for you. Why does this matter? Well, first of all, it matters to Peter's audience. Remember, he's writing to Christians who are scattered across Asia Minor, and they are largely transplants. We learned this from verses 1 and 2. These Christians are living and working in strange places among people who speak unfamiliar languages. These Christians, they are already considered strange because they are outsiders, migrant workers, if you will. But they are then looked upon as doubly strange because they are also followers of Jesus. Peter's readers are facing insults and criticisms and, and outright hostility for their faith. They're learning to be faithful witnesses where they are. And so must we. You might not be a stranger in your present surroundings, but you are out of place in an increasingly antagonistic culture. You cannot do a thing to change your past. Your future is not yet here. All that you can do is be a witness in this present moment. Where you are right now and the current circumstances that you find yourself in are by design. God has not made a mistake in letting you go through whatever you're going through. He does not 
want to pluck you out of your adversity. He wants to protect you within it. The Lord may not protect you from suffering. However, He will protect your fellowship with Him in the middle of your suffering. I'll let you in on a secret that's not really a secret. Your circumstances, this side of heaven, are never going to be exactly what you would prefer them to be. You will always, to some extent, be hoping for something else, be angling for a change, be attempting to improve your situation. And even when you achieve that goal or do that thing that you've always wanted to do, you will discover that it did not do for you what you thought it would do for you. If things were just as we desire them to be in this life, we would have no longing for the next. But you can be content. You can be content because you know the Lord has not made a mistake in allowing you to feel the pressure of a hostile world or allowing you to feel the difficulties of following Jesus in a world that is against Him. God's not made a mistake in that. You can be content when you realize the Lord does not want to use you to demonstrate how perfect your life circumstances will be when you follow Jesus. That's not what He's doing. The Lord wants to use you to demonstrate that despite imperfect circumstances, Jesus is sufficient. Despite imperfect circumstances, you can rejoice. In fact, you can greatly rejoice. The Lord wants you to rejoice greatly when you remember today that He has assumed the responsibility to protect you, to keep you close to Him, to reveal Himself through your life and through your witness. The watching world, they are not looking for Christians who have perfect lives. They will not find those. The watching world, they can't relate to that. People are looking for Christians who face adversity and hardship and frustration and still rejoice. You rejoice because regardless of what may befall you, you have the guarantee that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can shake you from fellowship with God in the present because Jesus Christ was shaken at the cross. It was there that he endured his father's displeasure against sin so that you can always experience God's pleasure, regardless of what you're going through. At the cross, Jesus was separated from the love of God so that you have the assurance that you never will be. As often as you face adversity and hostility in the present moment, remember in the present moment, that there is no hostility or adversity that can ever separate you from God. You can certainly lose a sense of God's nearness. You can refuse to trust Him and feel like that He has abandoned you. But since Jesus was abandoned on your behalf, the one who has trusted in Him will never be cut off. This is why you greatly rejoice in the present. 
because Jesus was not protected by the power of God at the cross, you know that you always will be. Peter writes in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? In what? You greatly rejoice in the mercy of God. This mercy we read about in verse 3 that comes to you in three ways, past, future, and present. Rejoicing in God's mercy has nothing to do with your circumstances. Rejoicing in God's mercy has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with your failures. It has nothing to do with your ability and strength or your inability and weakness. The mercy of God instead has everything to do with Jesus Christ. You greatly rejoice because your past spiritual birth gives you ever-increasing hope about the future. You greatly rejoice because your future inheritance means everything that is now currently breaking down will be fixed, will be made whole. You greatly rejoice because you are presently protected by the power of God. Even on your darkest days, you know God is present in whatever you are passing through. And notice that not one of these things are dependent upon your environment. Your rejoicing is not dependent upon your emotional state, your current situation, the state of your health, or your financial outlook. All of these things I just mentioned, they're subject to change, to fail, to disappoint you. But nothing can change now or in eternity the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Everyone longs to be happy. Everyone without exception desires to live out their days in joy and gladness. No one wants to be sad, even if some people go around looking like and acting like they do. And this is why joy is so impactful to a watching world. Joy disarms hostility. Joy creates a thirst in others to possess what we possess. Joy will impact others for good and for God. We are not very effective witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ if we are a joyless people. So let us rejoice greatly in what God has done, in what he will do, and in what he is doing today. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are reminded this morning of your great mercy, which in turn should always be producing great joy. So help us, Father, in the ways that we forget about what you've done for us, what you will do for us, and what you are doing for us. Help us in the ways that we forget about that to remember and to reflect and to focus our hearts on the Lord Jesus Christ and on what he's done. Father, we thank you and we love you. We pray that you'd impress your word on our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.